on this episode of EdScoop's Cutting Edge podcast from Scoop News Group, the current landscape of web accessibility in higher ed. This is EdScoop's Cutting Edge podcast. Every other Tuesday, we dive deep with decision makers on what's next in higher education IT and online learning. I'm your host, Jake Williams. The U.S. Departments of Education and Justice will soon update decades-old policy for web accessibility. The upcoming changes are designed to make college websites more accessible to individuals with disabilities. Kyle Shackmet, the Director of Digital Accessibility at Harvard University, is the co-leader of the Educause IT Accessibility Community Group. He tells EdScoop's Lindsay McKenzie about how he sees web accessibility and what he's hoping for with the upcoming updates. We talk about web accessibility uh, and take this from, from some legal terms that have come out, but we, we talk about making sure that folks with disabilities can use our websites and technology at the same time and with the same ease of use as folks without disabilities. Um, and so that's how we try to train and teach even someone that might not be a technical expert or consider themselves a disability access effort that um, can someone with a disability in, in your course, in your school, uh, a member of the public, can they access this roughly uh, equivalently as someone without a disability? And so that's that's how we talk about accessibility. I come at this um, personally, as well as professionally. I need things to be accessible for me to access them. Um, and so I'm both personally interested in making sure uh, education is accessible to all of our students and as an employee at an institution to make sure things are accessible to me. How would you describe the current regulatory landscape surrounding web accessibility? I think uh, the regulatory landscape around accessibility right now is very unclear, uh, and that cuts that's not education specific. Um, depending on what sources you look at or cite, but it, it's clear there are thousands of legal cases related to accessibility every year. And some may have uh, different aspects of accessibility they're looking at or more or less merit in certain cases. But uh, I don't think there's a lot of clarity when you're seeing such a volume of legal challenges and trying to define where the boundaries are through the judiciary because there isn't um, a lot of clear guidance in in the laws and in the regulation that we have right now. So um, from a technical perspective, we have clear criteria that we choose to aim for um, in in lieu of kind of some of the the lack of specificity that the regulatory environment leaves. Mm-hmm. Um, I know recently there was a Dear colleague letter from the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights and the U.S. Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division, and that hinted or seemed to say that you know changes were finally coming. There will be updates, and I was curious what you thought of that letter and whether you believe there are really changes coming and what they might look like. The proof will certainly be in the pudding as to what changes come or or when they come, uh, and that's they've been listed in the federal register for some time. And so uh, what I, the letter didn't say a ton of new information to people that watch this space very, very closely, but it did a really good job of synthesizing what's happened in the past couple of years in this space 
and looking ahead. And what I do think it did a good job of is highlighting the issue for institutions, right? Dear colleague letter sent to, to attention to across higher education that this is an important issue and one where attention is needed at schools. The, the last time they sent a joint letter about this was in 2010, talking about uh, the nascent technology of certain e-readers being deployed on campus. And in those 13 years, we've certainly come a long way of technology that we deploy and use across the curriculum and administratively and to communicate with the public. Um, so there was certainly plenty of, of room and usefulness in doing so, um, but we'll have, to, we'll have to wait and see what any proposed regulatory changes actually say. And when we talk about the regulatory updates, I believe it's specifically Title II of the Americans with Disabilities Act and Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. And I was wondering, if possible, if you could just sort of summarize the importance of those two particular pieces of legislation. How do they fit into your role? So the Rehabilitation Act is a law from the 1970s that uh, is specific about education institutions. And it says that uh, recipients of federal funding, including pretty much all of higher education, uh, those recipients cannot discriminate based on disability. And so uh, we need to make sure we're providing equal opportunities in education, not discriminating based on disability. And then the Americans with Disabilities Act is from 1990. Uh, so newer, but not so new anymore, right? Well over 30 years old now. And um, Title II of the ADA is specifically about state and local governments. And so that would apply specifically in this context to public institutions of higher education. Uh, private institutions are governed by Title III of the ADA. So uh, that is not currently on the horizon. Um, but not knowing what's coming down the pike, I think there's some presumption that if similar regulations come down uh, on Title II and Section 504, that as long as they're similar, it, it would encompass pretty much all of higher education. And it's my understanding that those two pieces of legislation, partly because they're just so old, really don't address any technical standards at all. Is that correct? There is nothing uh, about technology there. No, it's definitely from, from the 70s and the 90s. Um, they don't address technology and uh, not in, in a meaningful way that, that we can interpret today. And so the challenges are, and, and the reason there is such a, a, a caseload and all of the lawsuits I mentioned or investigations related to accessibility are because we have these two laws that very clearly state we can't discriminate based on disability. We should treat students, uh, staff, faculty, whomever equally, and they should have the same opportunities to all of the programs, services, and activities that education institutions offer. Well, there were no web-based applications in 1973 or 1990, certainly not how we think of today. Um, but when we talk about how institutions provide their services to schools, if those technologies aren't accessible, students don't get all of the programs and services and activities that their peers do. 
and they certainly don't get them in a timely manner or roughly equivalent manner. Uh, and that can range from course materials to uh, information about your school and how things are working in the pandemic when things were closing or staying open, uh, attending cultural events or sporting activities or getting access to your housing application or registering for a course, right? All of these things that happen on campuses now are mediated through technology. And if that technology isn't accessible, then students don't get access to, to those program services and activities. And so that's why there's this tension in, it's pretty obvious to most people who look at it that in order to be uh, providing access to all of those features of an education, accessibility is needed, but the law and the regulations say nothing specifically about how to do that. And that leaves a lot of gray area, which is interpreted through court cases and investigations, kind of one institution at a time, one outcome at a time. And with thousands of institutions in the United States alone, um, that is a really inefficient way to try to carve out what should happen. And so uh, optimistically, it, hopefully, if there is greater regulation in the space over time, it can help instead of everyone being an, an amateur court watcher or legal ruling um, kind of tracker on all of these cases to figure out what institutions should do. Uh, clear guidance that's effective would allow clear expectations across the board for institutions to know what to do proactively uh, that would hopefully prevent some of these cases of, of legal jeopardy. So you have to look through literal court cases and see what the outcomes are to figure out what standards technically uh, the departments are looking for you to meet. Is that right? Well, there's the legal reality and the practical reality. So um, institutions like mine and most aim for web accessibility standards, the web content accessibility guidelines that are a technical standard defined by the W3C, the World Wide Web Consortium. And so um, there isn't a legal standard defined in most cases to meet. Um, but I have hundreds, if not thousands of content creators and developers that I work with and they can't all be amateur court watchers for uh, think about how these these rulings may apply, right? Uh, so we aim for the technical standards that are um, objective and measurable that we can train people on and encourage them to follow. So that is how, as a practical reality of at a large institution with distributed content creator networks or uh, large amounts of faculty, uh, the technical standards are what we use as a guide to deliver on accessibility, um, but the sometimes different cases in jurisdictions might have conflicting rulings or um, be kind of carving out specific niches where something uh, may be required or not required, depending on uh, where you look or, or what you cite. Thinking about the federal regulation and those two specific pieces of legislation, is there a reason or has it been expressed why they haven't been updated in the last 30 plus years? Not explicitly. Um, we were in a similar situation where uh, regulation under the ADA specifically about web accessibility was on the federal regulatory agenda roughly 10 years ago. 
and um, it, it kept getting delayed and pushed back on when potential guidance would come out. Uh, and then there was a, a change in administration in Washington, and I believe it was in 2017. Uh, it came off the, the register of kind of the government's to-do list for things to regulate. So this uh, in the last two years, the the Department of Justice and Department of Education have put it back on the federal regulatory agenda. Uh, so we'll we'll see what happens. But um, it's it's come on and off multiple times, and uh, it's been a journey. And we'll see where it goes. Will the Educause Accessibility Group be paying attention to the legislation and and the changes? And will you participate in that process if you have the opportunity? Absolutely, we will. Uh, and we have been for for quite some time. So uh, the Educause IT Accessibility Group is a really awesome group of practitioners. We have people, we usually get uh, 100 or more practitioners on a monthly basis that attend our meetings, and they are folks with all kinds of roles at institutions that practice, are interested in, work on accessibility at their institutions across the country. And uh, the letter that you mentioned earlier in, in our conversation talked about some of the technical assistance that the Office for Civil Rights has offered. And uh, we've had members from the web accessibility team from OCR uh, join our meeting several times in the last couple of years. And they share guidance and tips and resources that they have or areas of focus that they work on when they work with institutions uh, in a, accordance with their kind of technical assistance and principles that they follow. So we have... Um, consistent engagement with some of those entities through this group. Uh, we will certainly, as an entity, be taking feedback and comments when any proposed uh, regulatory changes are announced. Uh, and of course, members of the public and institutions themselves can always submit comments uh, in this area, but we will certainly be doing so in accordance with EDUCAUSE and, and the greater structure. I'm assuming we might end up with a situation where if the regulation is updated, it might not actually be as high a standard as some institutions are already working towards in terms of the technical benchmark that you're trying to meet. So I'm curious, to what extent is a regulatory update actually useful? Is it, you know, just about starting a conversation maybe and, and actually raising this to the attention of people who lead institutions rather than technically being helpful? It's certainly possible that that could be the case. You know, one of the biggest issues that we face in higher education in trying to make our technology accessible is that we don't create the vast majority of technology that we deploy on our campuses. We rely heavily on third parties and those third parties to make their technology accessible. And we can often get caught in spirals of an institution might really want to deliver an accessible learning management system or curriculum that they license from a vendor or a library database or website development choose your choose your own adventure in terms of all the technologies we deploy but we depend on third party providers to deliver those in many 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 cases and we get caught in kind of this triangle of we have a a legal obligation to not discriminate based on disability to students. And in most cases, that means the technology should be accessibly natively. 
but the schools are on the hook for that kind of legal obligation. And then if there's not an accessible solution in the marketplace, a school is caught between a rock and a hard place of, do I try to purchase and deliver on something that all of my peer institutions or um, is, is the new hot thing or that might um, be innovative or a good technology, right? Things, things, there are really good reasons to use a particular technology and there's not an accessible option. So does the school not provide it at all? Do they have leverage to try to make the vendor provide something accessibly? And sometimes they do if they're a, a big fish in a small pond. And sometimes they don't. If a school is a really small fish in a really giant ocean of folks that are purchasing those technologies. So I don't know under the current uh, statutory and regulatory environment if there will be opportunities to address that. But if there's nothing about how schools work with third parties and try to address that scenario, it would certainly be a missed opportunity for any proposed regulations because when it comes to technology, uh, I can't think of a single institution that that uses everything homegrown. That's just not something that happens. So the accessibility group has worked in the past few years on a tool called the HECVAT because we love our acronyms in higher education. So it's the Higher Education Community Vendor Assessment Toolkit. Uh, and that was developed by uh, some great colleagues that actually screen products for security and privacy, which again is another uh, issue that a lot of our institutions should and do care about. Uh, and so we've, we've integrated accessibility assessment questions into the HECVAT, um, which attempts to offer some efficiencies in working with vendors so that a vendor can fill out a HECVAT comprehensively and address questions related to privacy, security, and accessibility once. And then many institutions that are asking for that information can just get a copy of that same piece, right? So it hopefully in that engagement uh, cycle that that schools and vendors have with each other, it creates efficiency there and allows a provider to update their HECVAT, say, on an annual basis um, once and then be ahead of the game in providing a lot of documentation. And so what we do for accessibility in the HECVAT is ask questions about, yes, how does a, a provider's technology conform to accessibility standards? But then we also ask questions about how a provider uh, may or may not be mature in their processes for continuously delivering accessible products. Because if you're going to sign a multi-year agreement with a provider for, say, a textbook curriculum or a, a lab product in your science courses, you want to have some level of confidence that uh, as that provider continues to update their product, that it will continue to be accessible so that you're not creating more work for yourself as an institution to try to retrofit and make accessible what the provider didn't the first time. So we have a, a series of questions uh, that try to get some insights so that schools can confidently know if a provider can deliver on the accessibility of their product. Are there any other issues that the Educals IT Accessibility Group is looking into right now? We always have a lot of issues on our plates. Um, I think some consistent ones that come up, we've certainly talked about, are how institutions interact with vendors 
And because so many of us are working with the same vendors over and over and over, uh, the regulatory pipeline is certainly something of interest to our group. We also do a lot of work with um, how we partner with diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts on our campus, right? Students with disabilities make up 10 to 20% or more of, of students on campuses. And how are we thinking about that as an aspect of including everyone in the work that we do? We get a lot of interest in issues related to libraries. And um, so often we can think about our course materials being accessible, which is hugely important. Uh, but for our graduate students or our faculty members or students doing research, um, if they can't access the articles and the books and the databases that they need to, um, that's also a limitation, right? So how are how are all of the the big publishers and vendors we work with thinking about accessibility? So if it happens on a campus, we've probably had a conversation about it, but those are certainly some of the biggest issues. Kyle Shackman, the Director of Digital Accessibility at Harvard University and the co-lead of the Educause IT Accessibility Community Group. You can read more about him and web accessibility at edscoop.com and in links in today's show notes. The Cutting Edge Podcast is available at cuttingedgepodcast.com and everywhere you get your podcasts. This show is a Scoop News Group production. Carlin Fisher helps make it happen and the entire team contributes. Until next time, I'm Jake Williams. Thanks for listening.